National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. Happy New Year! As we close out 2022, the Register prepared our Year in Review edition. We gave special attention to pro-life heroes this year, marking their long, hard work to overturn Roe v. Wade. The Register's national correspondent, Loretta Brown, shares her insights into those people and events that stand out in this watershed pro-life moment. Then we turn to the Register's Rome correspondent, Edward Penton, for a look back at this year's happenings involving the Pope and the Vatican. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register. I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen, EWTN News' Executive Director. Matthew, this year, as we did our normal year in review <laughs> um, for Register Radio, as we were recording that, uh, really we found out today of the serious decline of Benedict XVI's health. That's absolutely right. Uh, Pope Francis uh, asking for prayers for the Holy Father was subsequently confirmed by the Holy See Press Office. So uh, we don't know what's going to happen over the next few days, but uh, it's a very good idea for all of us to keep the Pope Emeritus in our prayers uh, as uh, he faces what he's certainly calling uh, his end time. Uh, And I think he is a great role model for us in preparing for a good and happy death uh, in exactly the the model of St. Joseph. That's right. So he's 95 years old, so we'll continue to pray for him as we start this this new year. We'll speak to Edward Penton later about the Vatican's year in review, but right now we turn to the United States and our nation page, uh, which we prepared for the print edition. Of course, the highlight of this year was the overturning of Roe, Roe v. Wade. It, it really stood out as the high point in 2022. And we also saw this year uh, to be a year of a nation divided. Um, Again, the Congress is very divided. Um, We have seen a precipitous decline in social values, and and we've seen the Biden administration really digging in regarding abortion on demand, as well as gender ideology. Uh, Again, another aspect of our year in review was uh, the nation rocked by another school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, but on the on the other side of things, in the in the church, we saw the Eucharistic revival, uh, the Synod on Synodality, a rise in Latino priests, which is really good because there's a rise in the U.S. Latino population. Uh, so there's a lot of, of great nuggets that can be found in the picture essay that we we do every year at ncregister.com and in, in our print edition. This year it was titled, the nation page was titled, Eucharistic Revival, A New Cardinal and Father Stew. But now we're going to turn to that most significant event, which was the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And we have Loretta Brown joining us from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Loretta. Hi, thanks for having me. So you wrote in, in the piece that you did that, that made it to our front page on Pro-Life Heroes, you wrote about this being uh, an event 50 years in the making with many, many people involved. So how did you go about recognizing the Pro-Life Heroes of this year? Well, you know, it was very much first to look at those who have been very vocal on the issue that, that I knew of, right? Um, Jeannie Mancini, Marjorie Danifelsi, you know, they're leaders of these pro-life organizations that go about 
organizing pro-life events year after year, you know, in my memory. But then when I, when I was doing that, that look into the people who had been vocal, you know, past 10, 20 years on this, uh, names were emerging of people who, from the very beginning, from 1973, even before 1973, were speaking out against abortion, were speaking about the evils of abortion, and were doing so in a way that really changed people's hearts and minds, really furthered the message of the pro-life movement. And it was really, it was very breathtaking for me to, to look back, um, you know, at all these different figures and the messages that they really put forward and the truths that they weren't afraid to speak in some cases where, you know, it, it, people just didn't think, oh, you know, this, this will be something that can be changed. I think there was a point, different points actually, where it just seemed like, ah, there's not a lot we could do. There were disappointments after, you know, Planned Parenthood versus Casey and 92 people thought, had thought, oh, maybe they'll, they'll overturn it then. And when they didn't, it was disheartening. And, you know, there were just all these points where people could have said, ah, this is settled now, you know. But they didn't. They they fought so hard to change hearts and minds and say, no, this is the ending of a human life, and we're going to speak out about the, this. So at the tip of the iceberg, Loretta, in, in, an, in a moment like this, is someone uh, like the female attorney general, the first female attorney general in Mississippi, Lynn Finch. I mean, she was who helped bring the Dobbs decision, Dobbs versus Jackson Health, to uh, the forefront here. So she, of course, was included in, in your piece. But then there are others like uh, activists, Nellie Gray and, and Joe Scheidler, who, who helped change public perception. They didn't make it to see this moment. What were some of their contributions? Yeah, so Nellie Gray, she's very inspiring, right? She was a federal attorney who was shocked by the Roe versus Wade decision, and she gathered um, pro-life activists in her home and said, no, we can't let the anniversary of this decision pass by without a protest, you know, so they organized the March for Life, and she thought, okay, you know, the reasoning of this decision, the, the idea behind this decision is so bad that we won't, we won't have to do this, right? It'll be a few years that I'll organize this protest, <laughs> and it ended up being her life, and she, she happily, she quit her job, at the, her secure, you know, federal government job, right. and gave her life to this cause, and it was truly inspiring to learn about that. And um, and it, you know, in my own life, the March for Life, I remember going to the March for Life as an eight-year-old um, with my family because that's what people in the D.C. area and people, you know, more widely in the U.S. did every year on the anniversary of of Roe versus Wade, and and I mean, what what they'll continue to do now to continue to protest abortion, but it is truly inspiring how she poured so much into that, um, you know, just because she saw the injustice of the decision and the great tragedy of, of legalizing, you know, the ending of all these unborn lives. Um, and Joe Scheidler, I mean, he was, he had a background in advertising and he was just so vocal. He was, he was putting in advertisements in newspapers beside um, advertising for, uh, for abortion doctors, you know, after the decision. And his son told me, they, they get people now coming up to them who said, you know, the, the ad that your father put in the paper changed, changed our minds, and we have this, you know, adult now who, who we decided to not, you know, not have an abortion because of, of that strategy. Um, so these were just the people who were on the scene there so early to, to speak out on this. 
Yeah, Loretta, one of the other big stories from the pro-life side this year were the number of pregnancy centers attacked by pro-abortion activists. But we also saw them get much needed attention for the work they do. Uh, how have they become heroes in this movement? Well, it's it's really, I think, what what I have kept hearing is this need of, okay, well, abortion is illegal in some states. There really needs to be a focus on making sure women have everything they need. And from the very beginning, the pro-life movement has cared deeply about that, and the pro-life pregnancy centers have been proof of that, right? And the, that movement started, I didn't realize it was back in the 60s, but when I did research for my piece, I was like, oh my goodness, yeah, that people were using this phrase, love them both, back <laughs> you know, back then, back when, when Roe was just coming down, um, because the pro-life movement has always cared <laughs> about the mother and the child and, and getting the woman the resources she needs. Um, and so that's more crucial than ever now, I mean, because, yeah, there are some, some areas where um, there, there's women who feel like they don't have a lot of choices, and the pro-life movement, I think, has recognized that and embraced more so than ever, okay, well, we need to have all, you know, all these networks of pro-life pregnancy centers armed, equipped <laughs> to, um, to just provide uh, material resources, um, you know, planning for for future careers, um, you know, housing in some cases, there's the maternity homes, um, and to just really surround this woman with, with love and community. And, um, you know, because I think a lot of people talk about making abortion unthinkable, just, just you know, having that approach where a, a woman feels like, okay, I don't, I don't have to make that choice of abortion. I have, I have what I need. You know, the the piece that you wrote, Loretta, is called Pro-Life Heroes, The Road That Led to the End of Roe. This was in um, page one of our year-in-review edition of the National Catholic Register. It can be found online at ncregister.com. And I was impressed because even uh, Mother Teresa made it into this piece. So so why did she make it in? Mother Teresa was so inspiring. These quotes I found, I remember hearing about this, but reading it again was incredible. She she gave a speech at the National Prayer Breakfast, um, which is this, this annual event, and they have different speakers that speak in front of the president. Um, and at the time, it was uh, President Clinton and, and First Lady Hillary Clinton at the time. And she said um, very fearlessly these amazing things about, you know, abortion ends a human life, and how can we, you know, ask people to love each other if they aren't, you know, there's not this this love between the mother and the child. We're attacking that bond. We're breaking that. And she, I just, I was astounded by, you know, she was, she wasn't afraid or intimidated to say that in that crowd and, and to just speak that truth. And so, the, I mean, and it was funny, actually, the reason though, another reason I included that in that piece, besides just being very inspired by her fearlessness on it, was that multiple people that I spoke with for the piece brought that up. They said that, they said the reason that this, stayed in the public eye and in the public mind um, and in the consciences of people was because of Catholic figures like Mother Teresa, Pope John Paul II, who were not afraid to just say the truth on abortion. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely, and to do it in the public square. So that was 1994 at the National Prayer Breakfast when Mother Teresa said, the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion because it is a war against the child, the direct killing of an innocent child, murdered by the mother herself. So yeah, profound words. And I think your piece also recognizes the politicians who had helped to make 
uh, this moment possible. Um, uh, politicians like our, our former President Trump, who, who uh, by his selection of the justices, uh, the Supreme Court justices, made such a decision possible. So there's a lot of credit to be given to politicians to, that helped uh, get us to this moment. And, and clearly, <laughs> there is a lot more work to do. Your piece ends with that too, Loretta. Uh, what is some of the work we must do as we close out this segment of the show, but as we look into 2023? Yeah, well, we touched on some of that, is the providing resources and love to, to mothers in these situations, in these crisis pregnancies, but also just a, a big focus on educating people, on changing hearts and minds on this issue, on you know, answering these myths about, oh, abortion is necessary for a woman to succeed. Abortion is necessary, you know, in, in these certain cases, um, you know, to, to really educate ourselves and be able to answer those those arguments and really continue to just educate and discuss, um, you know, this issue because people need to, to realize, really, abortion is, is ending a human life. And, you know, the pro-life movement has done all that research. Science has advanced in such a way, right? There's all these resources. We can just say that, right? We can just <laughs> make the case and, and make these arguments, and we're in a position to do that, and we need to do that with love. Right. Be bold with the material we need and with love. So thanks, Loretta, so much for your reporting, and we look forward to this year ahead. Thanks, Jeanette. When I come back, Matthew and I hear from Edward Penton on the Vatican's Year in Review. This is Register Radio on EWTN. There's more when we return. Bishop James Conley talks about the National Catholic Register. I've been reading the Register for over 40 years, and I can tell people with absolute conviction that it's the best periodical out there. They're honest, they're true, and they give a great perspective. It's important to be able to have a news source like the National Catholic Register where we can go to and make sense and decipher what's going on around us. It also engages the imagination. If you really want to be an informed Catholic, you got to read the National Catholic Register. To get six free issues, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. While you're waiting on your first issue, be sure to enjoy our content online. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back to Register Radio. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register. And our Year in Review newspaper's Vatican page this year had the headline, Pope Pleas for Peace, Internal Discord Continues, and German Bishops Defiant. That's the Vatican and papal happenings of 2022 in a nutshell. But here to really unpack this year, we are joined by Edward Penton, the Register's longtime Rome correspondent. Welcome, Edward. Thank you, Jeanette. Good to be with you. So, Edward, of course, today we're recording our show a few days in advance of when it airs. It's December 28th, and just this morning, very early, we heard of uh, Pope Benedict's decline in health. What have you heard? Yes, we heard this uh, this morning. The Pope Francis mentioned it at the, uh, at the general audience at the end, um, asking to pray. He said he was very sick. And so that, um, of course, uh, caused quite a lot of alarm across the world. And that uh, 
we've heard uh, I got confirmation that he he does have um, a serious uh, uh, decline in in his health. He's already getting very frail. He couldn't. Uh, he wasn't very mobile, and he was declining anyway. But it seems as though he he's um, as far as I understand it, there's some kidney failure, uh, which. Um, they're looking into the Vatican put out a statement saying that he's being carefully monitored and his condition is stable. But uh, clearly when he's 95 years old, um, these sort of events cause a lot of concern and, and worry about his health. Absolutely. So we join the rest of the world in praying for Benedict in these last days and, and um, prepare our hearts um, to, to reflect on, on his legacy <laughs> Um, and yes. that's something we are all preparing for as um, as we face these days as well. So, Edward, thanks always for keeping your ear to the ground <laughs> and bringing sure. us the news. In this last year, um, there's been a, a lot of news coming from the Vatican, um, as usual. And uh, from your perspective, what are the biggest events um, of the year, the ones that the, the registered notes as as the events of the year related to the Pope and the Vatican. Yes, well, I think um, clearly the the Russian invasion of Ukraine was a big, a big part of uh, the Vatican's certainly diplomatic work. Um, and Pope Francis was at the forefront of that, trying to uh, broker peace between Russia and Ukraine. He he certainly made some efforts. There was talk of him possibly going to visit Ukraine, although that never happened. Um, but he also. Uh, was quite controversial in his statements. I think he upset uh, quite a few Ukrainians because he 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 said that um, NATO was uh, partly at fault and that they were basically um, coaxing Russia into this conflict. Uh, and but they also um, caused some upset to the Russians too later on in the year um, by things that he said, rather controversial things. So although he's tried to be a broker for peace, he's unfortunately. Um, not got that far, it seems, but he has appealed constantly for peace. So that's been a, a, a key, a key part of the of the year for the Vatican. Um, I think also this year we we've been shrouded by scandal. We've had, uh, of course, the Father Rupnik scandal, which came at the end of the year. Uh, this Jesuit artist who's famous for for producing the mosaic in the Apostolic Palace. He uh, is um, alleged or found by the Vatican investigation to. Um, have uh, abused, certainly uh, there was a case to answer for, for abusing uh, women religious, um, but the the statute of limitations were brought in uh, and not waived so that uh, those um, charges couldn't be uh, brought, couldn't, he couldn't be held to account for those. And there was a, other serious um, allegations behind Father Ripley, including um, violating the confessional uh, which he was excommunicated for, and then the excommunication was lifted. Uh, so there's a lot of um, uh, problems with this, and the fact that it was covered up. It wasn't um, the Jesuits weren't particularly straightforward initially about this whole issue and the affair, and uh, it caused um, quite a lot of scandal. Not not just the scandal itself, but the way it was handled, right. especially afterwards by the Jesuits and and by uh, the Vatican and the, the vicariate of Rome as well. Right, and of course that's ongoing. We we do hope there's a little more clarity as as things proceed, especially in what the Vatican knew when, um, what the Jesuits knew when, and there's some pressure there for um, for leadership to be more transparent. So that that I would say is still mm. an an ongoing story. 
Let me switch the conversation a little bit. If um, we were to ask somebody at the Vatican um, higher up uh, what they think the biggest events of this year, what do you think they might say? Yes, I think, um, uh, well, I think clearly the the, the reform of the Vatican uh, was concluded this year. And I think that's been in the works for, well, for the past nine years. So that, I think, would have been pretty big for the Vatican and, and was for, for Vatican officials. The the new apostolic constitution that the Pope issued in March, the Predicate Evangelium, um, and that, um, as I say, concluded a lot of the reforms. It was quite radical in that it's put the, a new dicastery for evangelization at the top of the hierarchy of Vatican dicasteries, um, supplanting uh, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which has always been uh, one of the leading, if not the leading, uh, dicastery. Um, and the Secretariat of State. So so that was all um, quite significant. So I think that will probably be um, high up on the, on the, the, the leading story f- amongst Vatican officials. Absolutely. And I would say that that's a, it's been a challenge for us just to learn the new uh, kind of lines of, um, of authority within the Roman Curia. It's been a change for us to even say, instead of congregation for the doctrine of faith, the uh, what was you, usually the CDF is now the DDF, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. It's something I keep catching myself time and time again. But it's been nine years uh, since the reforms began. Um, the Synod on Synodality, um, how high do you feel like it would rank in, in this year's events? Yes, I mean, that's quite a, that's, that's certainly uh, come along now. We've passed the, the first national phase. Now we're into the continental phase. This is the second of three three phases of this uh, multi-year synod on synodality. So that's been, we've, we've actually sort of come to see more about what this synod is about. Um, a lot of people uh, seem happy with it. A lot of people are, are unhappy with it. They, they think it's um, a listening process, but only listening to those groups which, uh, which seem to be uh, pushing for, for heterodoxy rather than orthodoxy. So there's um, growing controversy about this synod and it's, but it is progressing and, uh, as it goes on, we'll see more about what this, what this synod really is about, and whether there is some sort of agenda that they're pushing. They, the the organisers often deny that there is an agenda, but um, but it doesn't um, seem to hold up according to the way it's run and the people that have chosen to right. run it. So um, we'll just have to see in the, yes. in the months coming ahead what and what I would it, almost turns out to be. Yeah, sorry mm. to jump on your words there, but I almost would say that the synod on citadality is is almost like a non-event because of how few people participated. It, 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 we've extended it another mm. year, it seems, I think, in, in hopes of, of gaining more perspectives. Right. <laughs> um, but, it, right. but it really mm. was kind of a fizzling event this year, whereas the German Synod is something that has captured a lot of attention even around the world. Um, wh- where does that end yeah. up this year, the German Synod? Yes, well, it's interesting what you say about that, Jeanette, because, I mean, the Germany, apparently only 1% of the of the faithful actually took part in, uh, in the Synod on Synodality, the last phase. Um, but yes, their their own Synod is progressing too, their Synodal path. And similarly, um, most of those taking part are, are very much of a certain uh, certain ideological viewpoint. And uh, that that is also progressing. It's going ahead despite um, criticism, heavy criticism from some senior Vatican officials uh, when they, the German bishops visited on their ad limina visit last month. Uh, but they seem quite keen and they seem uh, not to have much 
uh, head, not to have many headwinds in front of them by by moving ahead with this. The Vatican offers has issued warnings, but they haven't carried them out with any um, sanctions or any any particular effort to really clamp down on them. So, so they're going to continue and and conclude probably I think next year. So, um, and the interesting thing about the German and synodal path is that it's probably going to feed into the synod and synodality. Now that may be. Um, deliberate, uh, but it does seem to be the case, and I think a lot of what's being discussed uh, will end up being part of the synod and synodality too. At least that's the the general prognosis, I think. I think a very big story this year relates to China, and this is both a, a story for our world page, but also for our Vatican page. Um, what has happened this year in regard to uh, the church in China? Yes, well, again, the this secret document, the secret provisional agreement that the Vatican signed with Beijing back in 2018 has been renewed for another two years. Uh, the Vatican did that in, in September. Um, that's despite uh, growing restrictions on religious freedom in the country and growing sinicization, which is trying to make China um, and the church more, more Chinese, which means also um, more socialist. And they seem to be quite keen to pursue that and to push that. Um, and despite that, despite the Vatican signing this agreement, hoping that there'll be better, um, better treatment of the church in China, uh, they, they installed a bishop against the Holy See's will, I think it was in November, um, re- resulting in the Vatican giving a stern uh, rebuke to Beijing, but really nothing else. And uh, so they've been allowed to do that without any any sanction or any kind of um, threat to pull out of this agreement, for example. And so um, it's drawn a lot of criticism over the, over the past year by experts on China. So uh, it's, it's caused, um, yes, again, considerable controversy. Uh, the Vatican is sticking to its guns, though. They say that it's something that's, uh, that requires patience and that they hope that all of this will, will eventually come to fruition and bring uh, religious freedom to the church and better unity between the underground church and the, the state church of China. So we'll see. But uh, but also we've had uh, problems with um, uh, Cardinal Joseph Zen, of course, was, was sent to court and fined by the Hong Kong authorities for for something he claimed to be not guilty of, which was funding, a, uh, helping to fund this fund for um, political activists. And then we have this the Catholic uh, entrepreneur Jimmy Lai being imprisoned for five years. Um, who was simply trying to campaign for for freedom in China, and so despite all the efforts of the Vatican to to help bring human rights and religious freedom there, it doesn't they seem to be going in the opposite direction? All right, there's disparity there between what the Vatican desires and what seems to be happening on the ground. Edward, this year has been packed. Uh, The Register's year in review is always filled with highlights, but also with beautiful images and sometimes just momentous images that um, jog the heart. Uh, So I encourage our listeners to go to ncregister.com and take a look at the year in review. As we mentioned, uh, please continue to pray uh, for uh, Benedict XVI in these days. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online. Thanks for joining us here on Register Radio on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and for my producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello, and until next week, we pray that God bless you.